to Revelation chapter 18. I want to go right to the reading of the Scripture. If you'll find this passage, Revelation chapter 18, we're looking at verses 1 through 3 this evening. And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. The title of the message tonight for the third time is, It's the Economy, Stupid. That's a phrase that became popular in 1992 when Bill Clinton was running against the first George Bush. After the great economic success of the 80s with Ronald Reagan, there was a recession that came just prior to the 1992 election, and this saying became popular. And unfortunately, it is so popular today that the economy trumps all other issues in our nation. Uh, personal, moral ones of our leaders really doesn't matter any longer. It's more important to us than public policy that leads to a decadent, immoral society. It's more important than the murder of unborn babies. And it doesn't really matter what a platform, what platform a candidate runs on today. It doesn't matter what his personal beliefs are. It doesn't matter if he has any qualifications at all. All that matters is the economy, and it appears that if it appears that he can make life better economically, then he is a shoe-in to win office. And the most troubling aspect of that is how that American Christians have jumped on that bandwagon. And we stopped a long time ago asking God that he would give us decent, moral, God-fearing men to lead our country. Instead, what we seek after is better lifestyles. We want nicer houses, bigger bank accounts, greater luxuries. And if it means that the guy who promises those things to us is a total stinker himself, that's okay with us. And I think tonight we'll be able to see how that, uh, my, probably my main point of the message tonight, is how that America has become immersed in Babylon. Uh, politically and religiously, Babylon is much more preferred by the American people and even by American Christians than Zion. Now, I really don't think it's hard for us to see how that Babylon will establish itself without a fight. Earlier in our study, we saw how the Antichrist has an easy road to his position. He comes in a time of political chaos. He comes in a time when the economy is suffering. The world is under great duress. Uh, Luxury-minded people have been deprived of their luxuries, and so they will do whatever necessary to get it back. And so the Antichrist will have great success in the beginning of his reign, uh, putting the world back together. And that's one of the most amazing parts of his abilities, is that he can take a world that's been ravaged by God's judgments, that is in the economic mess that it will be in, all the problems that are going on, and then he'll be able to pull all of that together again and really make a pretty decent world for those who follow him. And perhaps even more remarkable than that whole scenario is that how God allows him to do that. And God has a plan, and he's working according to that plan. And what God is doing, he's set a net invisibly upon the ground. And he uses the economy as the bait. 
And he uses uh, a lawlessness and a decadent society as his bait. And he waits until the whole world has stepped into that, into that net. And then he draws it tight. He draws the noose. He encircles all of those people, then throws them into a vat. And as the Word of God says, he treads out their blood. And it's just amazing how skillfully that God goes about his business. And there shouldn't be any wonder about that because if you take just one piece of God's plan, if you take the withdrawal of the Holy Spirit's restraining power over sin, then you see how that the world marches madly and happily to their own destruction. And that's really, really something to think about. You take away God's gracious influence. You take away his common grace. And it doesn't take very long for men to be completely overwhelmed, overcome with their wicked indulgences. And so another part of God's plan that's really masterful is how he's figured in the destruction of ecclesiastical Babylon. We read about that in chapter 17. Uh, After the Antichrist gains his political objectives, he destroys the vehicle that brought him to power. Uh, Ecclesiastical Babylon will be a strong ally of the Antichrist in the beginning, but he never really cared too much for her. Uh, The apostate religious system is a prima donna that he doesn't want to indulge much longer. And so his political allies roast that system like the pig that it is. And God is the one who sets it all up. And we notice in that 17th chapter that God didn't really even have to take direct action. He gives her the rope that she took and tied around the necks of those that were her enemies. And by that same rope, God uses that to break her own neck. And so here we have the end of ecclesiastical Babylon and what God is doing. He's systematically taking down his enemies. And so he starts with ecclesiastical Babylon, then he moves on to his next objective, and that is the destruction of the glorious, magnificent empire of the Antichrist. And this is what chapter 18 is about. Chapter 18 opens with the glory of God. The heavens peel back, and here we see God's representative, an angel who steps out on the stage. The brilliance of God's glory shines about as he relays this message of judgment. And his voice booms out in a, in a way that he announces this judgment, that, so it's heard over the entire world. And the sentence is passed down. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And so the time has come for this foul empire of the Antichrist to meet its demise. Then he gives us the description of that city in verse number 2. It, it's we have what we have called a den of devils. Babylon the great has fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. And so Babylon is infested with demons, like a tenement house that's infected with cockroaches. Uh, so is Babylon. Now, some years ago, I related an experience that I had when I was out on visitation one night in one of the poor neighborhoods of Lexington, Kentucky. I went into a home and I sat down on a, on a, in a chair across from the family. And I noticed as I was speaking to them that the wall that right, was right behind them seemed to be moving. Now, the room was very dimly lit, and so I couldn't really tell what was going on. But I was determined I was going to find out what that was. And so as I was ready to leave the house, I went over and I looked behind them, the wall, that, the wall where they were sitting, and I saw millions of cockroaches that were moving up and down this wall. And the whole thing just seemed like a wave that was moving. Well, that's the way Babylon is going to be. Only it won't be an infestation of cockroaches, but there will be multi-millions of demons that will be there. 
Now, they're, they're all there because they've been released out of the abyss. Millions of them have been released, and they have no place to go because God's not going to let them fly off into the universe. Instead, he's confined all of that to the earth. Uh, Satan here is confined with all of his demons. And so you have this huge infestation of all of these demons that are in Babylon. And the scripture describes them like carrion-eating birds. They're like vultures. They're, they're, they're just not very pretty, is I guess the best way that you could put that. You know, the Bible tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. When he comes to us and he tempts us, he doesn't appear to us as he really is, but instead he comes as he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. And his appearance must have been so beautiful that he didn't have much trouble at all convincing Adam and Eve to defy God, to be disobedient to him. And so since that time, the devil has appeared that way. He, he doesn't come as he really is, but he appears as an angel of light, the Bible says. And so he comes in an inviting, an enticing, a beautiful way, an appealing way, an alluring way. He's not really the roaring lion that the Bible calls him. At least when we see him, he has a much different appearance. But I really don't think that when the tribulation comes, that the devil will have to appear that way. And I don't think that his demons will appear that way, or, way either. We, we've already seen in what we've read the horrible appearance of them. And, and so they're not worried about disguises anymore. The Holy Spirit has been removed from the world. And so the devil goes about his business as he pleases. And God allows him to do that. And so he's not concerned with all the appearances. He takes what he wants. And evil, foul men give him what he asks. And it doesn't make any difference how evil what evil things that he does ask for, they're willing to give it because Satan has promised them something. The Antichrist has promised them something. And so they say, give us what we want, what we want and we'll follow you no matter what you ask of us. No matter how regurgitating you are, we will follow you. Well, God has his timing. God has his reason, reasons for letting this go on. But we know that he's not going to suffer it forever. His plan is to bring in an everlasting kingdom of righteousness. He lets men have their fill of sin. He lets them soak it all up until it bulges out at their eyes. And then God comes along and he squeezes just a little bit harder and their eyeballs pop out like squishing a festered pimple. That's going to happen at the Battle of Armageddon. Millions upon the earth will be killed and then the everlasting kingdom of God comes. Now at first that kingdom is going to be filled with reprobates as well as the redeemed. The reprobates will live in the kingdom as well as God's people, and they will be ruled by God with an ironclad fist. And so they're not going to be free to do what they did before. God is going to rub their noses in the dung that they love so much, and they relish that, and so God's not going to let them up. So they're forced into obedience. And you know what the Bible calls that? The Bible calls that vengeance. And God said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Someone in our class a few weeks ago said that you have to balance out God's wrath with his love. And you certainly do. There are times in the Bible when it seems that God's wrath and, his God and God's love are terribly out of balance. But it only appears that way because we look at it through men's eyes. We don't look at it through God's eyes. Whenever you think about the love of God, you have to understand that God is holy, he is righteous, he is just, and God's love always works within that realm. And it doesn't work in our sometimes syrupy ideas about who God is and about with our giddiness that makes us put on smiley buttons and believe that God is always sufferably intolerant. 
And perhaps the worst word that has ever entered into the vocabulary of a Christian is the word tolerant. And I don't mean that we ought to be persecutors because the Bible teaches against that. It forbids it. But you had better watch out how you use the word tolerant or tolerance when it comes to God. Because tolerance is an elastic word with God. He allows things in the world to happen for his purposes only. And then when that band gets stretched too tight, it will break. And God only allows it to go so far. When he has met his objectives, then the band will break. And many people will be surprised in that day how quickly that it comes. How little elasticity there really is in the tolerance of God. Well, here we see that the time of God's patience is over. And so his plan comes together exactly as it was designed to do. And so Babylon is ready for destruction. And the certainty of it is in the words that were given here, where it says, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And those words are in a Greek tense that means that it is, a, it is done. It's done as, or it is as if it was surely done. And in just a few verses, we will be able to see that Babylon that took so long, so many centuries to build up to the place that it takes the position that it does in the tribulation period. What took so long to build, God is going to destroy in an instant. Well, that was what we covered in the first two parts of the message. Now we come to this third part, which is the commercial conspiracy. And verse number three, For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. See, the drawing power of of, uh, Babylon was never religion. Religion is nice. Religion served its purpose. But the only thing that really made ecclesiastical Babylon attractive to the world was the way it could manipulate wealth. You know, I can imagine that when apostate Christianity sucks up every religious vermin that it can that one of the first ones that it will take under its wing, uh, the first one that will come under the power of the Antichrist and apostate religion will be, I think, the health, wealth, and prosperity proponents, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Now, why would that be true? Why is that so attractive? Well, it's because every man is a materialist. Every person that's born into the world has this problem. We're all this way. We're all materialist. In the the devil's kingdom, it's the economy, stupid. And so what better religion would there be for a materialistic society than health, wealth, and prosperity? There's not an ounce of true godliness in that system, and all that it ever can be and all that it ever will be is man-centered. Joel Osteen says that Christ died that we might have life and we might have it more abundantly. And that is a great quote from the New Testament. That's what the Scripture says. But you have to watch out for a false prophet who takes that spiritual message and he turns it into a material one. You see, the first thought that these kind of greedy people have in their mind, uh, uh, a a greedy, self-centered mind looks at more abundantly, that we might have life and have it more abundantly, and they look at that, and the first thing that they see there is more cars in the garage. They see designer clothes in their closets. They... They see a nicer neighborhood, or they see a hundred more gadgets that we can use to waste our time. And never do these curly-headed little twerps recognize that everything that God gives is for the advancement of his kingdom. Everything is always about God. If God ever allows a dime of wealth, he intends for you to take that and to plow it back into his kingdom. And that's because the first thought is God. The second thought is God. The third thought is God. 
It's always about God. And somehow these religious hucksters never get that. The Scriptures teach us that we exist for God's glory and for nothing else. And if you think that that's not good enough for you and you want more for you and you'd like to concentrate more on you, then you're not fit for God's kingdom. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so you live through Christ. That's the only way you do live. Your glory is in him. And so if God ever gives you a dime, don't think for a second that God intends to increase your status in the world through that. Everything that you have belongs to God. And you don't belong to this world. You belong to his world. And the scriptures teach that in his world there is no foul spirit and there is no unclean bird. And that is exactly what materialism is. That's what greed is. That's what the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is. It's a foul spirit and an unclean bird. But if you were looking for a system of theology that would fit into what the Antichrist desires and what these people desire in the end times, what better one could you find? What type of religion is better designed, I should say, to accommodate the lust of men? It's a self-gratifying system. And everybody in this system is a materialist. And so they're not saddened at the demise of Babylon. The, 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 the kings and the merchants have lived it up with her. They've fornicated with her. They've multiplied like dogs in heat. And they're not going to be satisfied, or they will be satisfied, I should say, no matter what. And so they'll indulge themselves in anything that they can. Why do they do it? Because it's the economy, stupid. And so when, they, when Babylon falls, they're not gladdened because the fall of Babylon is the end of crime. They aren't gladdened when the fall of Babylon comes because their daughters are no longer raped. They aren't gladdened when Babylon falls because sexually transmitted diseases are eradicated. They're not gladdened when it falls because homosexuality has been stamped out. They're not gladdened when it falls because murder is no longer a way of life. They aren't gladdened when Babylon falls because the drug cartels are stamped out. No, when Babylon falls, they're grief-stricken. And they are because... The economy is dried up. And so they weep and they wail because there's nothing that drove them like the economy, stupid. Well, secondly, we see that wealth is the idol of indulgent people. I want to call your attention to a statement that Paul makes in the book of Colossians. He says in Colossians 3, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see that last phrase? Covetousness, which is idolatry. The strong desire for wealth, or in this case, if you're looking at this verse, this could mean sexual escapades, but all of these inordinate strong desires are idolatrous. These are the gods that people will worship in Babylon. There's Uh, this bewitching, spellbinding desire for wealth that people have. And so wealth actually has God status. And the problem with overt greed and the kind of avarice that will be shown during that time is that when you have that kind of greed that runs over everything, then people actually become repulsed by that. Now, we might indeed be greedy people, but we don't want to appear that way. We're terribly self-centered, and so if we can deceive ourselves and others to make them think that we're not actually greedy, we want to make them think that we're not really what we are. Greedy people 
are disguised when they could make it appear that their desires are actually for the common good. I want to read you something that was written in 1865. And as you listen to this, just see if this couldn't have been written yesterday. This is from J.A. Sice and his lectures on the apocalypse. And he's speaking of covetousness. And here's how he talks about how it gets covered up and how you can turn this thing around to make it look like a good thing. He says, to array it in honorable garb, to dignify it, to make it appear good and praiseworthy so that men may love, bless, and follow it as something noble and beneficent. This is what calls for the magician's wand and the wizard's power. And here it is that great Babylon's delusive witchery comes in. If a godless and unscrupulous commerce can be made to appear as the great and only availing civilizer, if it can show its end to be not only the welfare of individuals but the prosperity of nations and peoples, if its office is the development of the resources of the whole earth, and for that end visits every land and traverses every sea, if it is really the great stimulant to intellectual effort, the helper of science, the procurer and disseminator of all useful wisdom and intelligence, the rewarder of inventive genius and engineering skill, the self-sacrificing handmaid of all social, moral, and legislative improvement, if it is not the mere possession of wealth for its own sake, but to secure the beneficent power and the influence and glory to result from its wise and proper employment that makes up the end and aim of its endeavors, then will the ugliness of avarice be voided, bitter will have been made sweet, and all attendant deflections from right and truth swallowed up in the grandeur and beauty and the beneficences of its purposes. The demon of covetousness would then have become an angel of light, A halo of glory would encircle its head. Nations would hail its undertakings, admire its enterprise, and praise its wonderful benignity. The arts and sciences, the museums and the universities would lay their chaplets at its feet. Kings and governments would cheerfully become its nurses and patrons. Religions would be glad to bestow upon it their prayers and benedictions. The apostles and prophets of this world's progress would clap their hands and shout over its success. And myriads would celebrate its triumph as the ushering in of a long-dreamed millennium. And here is the sorcery with which great Babylon leads all the nations astray, linking the false doctrines of human progress and perfectibility to the worst of passions. She lures the world to her support and makes mankind the willing slave of her base idolatry. And already, from pulpit and platform, from philosopher and political economist, from orator and poet, Are we compelled to hear just these glorifications of the cupidities of man as the forerunner, if not the instrument of this world's regeneration? Alas, for such philosophy and such hopes, what estimate God puts upon them may be learned from what he has revealed by the doom of Babylon, its sorcery, the penalty for which is death. You see, there's no way that you can pretty up what God calls an abomination. Whenever your focus becomes the economy, then you are a Christian that's fallen into idolatry. And when you think that the economic success of America is more important than her spiritual success, then you have been captured by an idol. And that idol is as real as if you bowed to an idol that was carved of stone. And so what do we do? Well, good spiritual decisions are backburnered for better economic decisions. And so the Christian becomes a worshiper of the material world. And everything that he does, every place he goes, everything that he attempts has the aura 
of the economy behind it. And the godless philosophy of today is just this. And that is that we can save the world from poverty, we can feed the world, we can make the world a better place, and we can do all of that without God. And the more that we try to do that, the more that we try to help people by raising their economic status without God, the more sin that they fall into and the worse that their lives become. And so we see that evidence in every city across America. You see, there's probably no place that tries to do more social work than California. There's probably no place that's more liberal and tolerant than right here in the Bay Area. If there's a social program, we've got it. And if there is a spiritual problem, we've got that too. And so what we have ended up then with is a place where we live that's rampant with sin. It has one of the lowest church attendances per capita than any place in the country. And now what do we find is happening to us even at this very hour? Our prosperous Bay Area has become an economic wasteland right in front of our eyes. Commercialism has never bettered a life. All that it ever did was to deteriorate the quality of life. And you can expect that because it's always against God. Now, thirdly, and I'll close with this tonight, is that we have turned from the Lord to luxury. The wisest man that ever lived got caught in this trap. Now, I'd like for you to turn, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 3. And you may remember the request that Solomon made when he became king. It was the only request that he made. He asked God for wisdom to lead the people. Solomon realized that he had a huge responsibility that was placed upon his shoulders. He followed Israel's most beloved king. And so he realized that he had a great responsibility. He needed help with this job. And so as we look in 1, Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, this is when Solomon prayed to the Lord. In Gibeon, The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David my father great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or to come in, and thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this, thy so great a people?" And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. Now let's go over to chapter 10, and let's see what Solomon did with the wealth that he was given. 
The 10th chapter is an amazing one because it describes all the fabulous riches that Solomon obtained. And you might want to read the entire chapter later just to get an idea of how prosperous that he was. But I want you to notice one little detail that many years before this, God said would be a snare. This is in verse number 26, 1 Kings 10, 26. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, and he had a thousand and four hundred chariots and twelve thousand horsemen whom he bestowed in the cities for chariots and with the king at Jerusalem. Verse 28. And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen yarn. The king's merchants received the linen yarn at a price. And a chariot came up and went out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so for all the kings of the Hittites and for the kings of Syria did they bring them out by their means. One of the prohibitions that God placed upon the kings of Israel is that they could not accumulate horses. And he also said there's one country that you are absolutely forbidden to trade with and you can't return to this place. In Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 and 16, we're told about it. God said to Moses, When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, or Moses telling the people, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like all as all the nations that are about me, he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses." For as much as the Lord has said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. And the reason that God prohibited the kings of Israel to accumulate all of these horses and all of this wealth is because that would turn their heart away from God. And it would cause them to be self-sufficient. And so they would have the horses, they would have the standing army, they would have all these men, and then they would forget that God is the one who delivers them. And they would forget that God can win battles. He can conquer foes with just a handful of people, as he's done so many times. But Solomon didn't listen to that. Instead, Solomon traded with Egypt, the thing that was forbidden for him to do. He sent people down there, the children of Israel, to gather goods from them, which God said you can't do. And so what Solomon did, he turned from the Lord to luxury. And you'll find there in that 10th chapter and all around that area there, that that he had a golden throne. He had six steps that led up to his throne. He gathered building materials. He had apes and peacocks and ivory. And in the end, the luxury, the wealth in Solomon's kingdom was so vast that the Bible says that silver there was like finding stones on the ground. In other words, silver didn't have any more value than a common stone that you would find because there was so much of it. Solomon had alliances with all the heathen kings that were around him. He married hundreds of wives that were from these idolatrous nations. And it was actually Solomon's wealth that led to the downfall of Israel. Because as soon as the wise king was dead, Israel began to fall apart. His son Rehoboam presided over a 210 split in Israel. The northern ten kingdoms split, uh, ten uh, tribes split off. He was left with the southern two tribes. And so now you have Israel divided against itself. And it didn't take long for the whole works to completely be, be torn apart. A, God, a divided kingdom can't stand. That's what God's word says. Now, if you had asked the queen of Sheba, who came to visit Solomon, what is it that makes Solomon so great? You know what she would have said? It's the economy, stupid. 
Look at all that Solomon has. Look at all the wealth of his kingdom. She was wowed with all the luxury so that she said, the half has not even been told me. And so here we are today. We're God's people, and we haven't learned a thing. And what we're doing is that we're bowing to the economic God, and we have to ask ourselves, where has that gotten us? Our whole society is rotting from within. And so we have actually become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. It's the economy, stupid, that led us away from God. And your children and mine, your children and mine are going to reap the mistakes that we've made. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we spent in your word tonight and a solemn warning that we find here. We can easily see how this system of Babylon will arise when American Christians, uh, your people, are marching right along to the beat of the world and we've been sucked up into this economy and we think that's the most important thing that there is in our lives. And so we shape our lives around the money that we make, the jobs that we have, the houses that we live in, And we have forgotten that the most important thing that could ever happen to a person is life in Jesus Christ and knowing him as Savior. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us out of this, that you would open our eyes, that we'd once again concentrate on the greatest thing that any person could ever do, and that's to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the dying world rather than being concerned about what we can heap to ourselves. Bless your people, Lord. Help us to learn something from this tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.